Welcome to the inaugural season of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekas-Wolf. I was uh, looking through the uh, the bold italic uh, articles that we published recently and some of my favorite ones, and I was recounting an article that one of our writers, Andrew Wallace Chamings, wrote about a coffee shop that's selling coffee that is partially brewed from cat shit. Yes, 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 yes. I've, I've read about that. I've never had it, but it strangely gets me excited. It gets you excited? Okay. It kind of grosses me out a little bit, I have to admit. Uh, so can you... Uh, give a picture to our listeners what that's like for you reading the bold attack. Do you sit down on your couch with like your hot cup of coffee or hot chocolate or whatever it is that you drink? And do you drink hot chocolate or coffee? I don't drink hot chocolate. I drink coffee. And you thumb through this beautiful bound book, uh, the bold italic. Uh, no, not not quite. It's usually actually on my phone. I do my reading on my phone. I have to admit. Do you uh, do you know where we can get the <coughs> the cat shit? Coffee around here in the Bay Area? You know I'm going to make everyone who's listening to this go to the Bold Italic to find out. (laughs) We had an amazing conversation with someone who runs a local coffee company that has a much bigger impact than just here locally. But boy, it's a cool story about how the Bay Area is trying to not just create great products, maybe different products than technology products, great products, but also really keeping a strong focus on community. In community in in more ways than you can even imagine. I mean, she thinks about every single employee as part of her community and as one of the few people that I've met that has stayed true to her values for a very long time as both a business person and a member of the San Francisco community. Our guest today, Eileen Rinaldi, is the CEO and founder of Ritual Coffee. And I like I got to tell you that when you told me that we had the CEO of Ritual Coffee coming in, so one, I was like, are we kind of a big deal? Like, how did that happen? And two, I was just excited because I'm a huge fan of the brand of Ritual Coffee. I actually didn't understand the story about Ritual Coffee, though. I didn't understand Eileen's story, and I didn't know how much they are just embedded in the community of San Francisco. She is such a staunch advocate of keeping local communities local. Like, it's a really, really interesting story. It kind of makes you like Ritual, or at least makes me like Ritual even more than I did before we met her. And without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Eileen. Thank you for being here on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Every time I say that, I always think about your article, Sunil, which is actually how we named the podcast. But there's this kind of real intense set of feelings that I get every time I say the name because I... Did you read Sunil's uh, I did. piece a while back? There's so many... And it's funny because you say that and I'm like, I'm not in Silicon Valley. Yeah, you're like, no, <laughs> I can't be here. Um, I'm in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. And uh, we want to start off talking about... Where where you grew up, where you came from, what kind of inspired you, and we want to do that through the lens of San Francisco. Like you, you live here now. I do. I've been here for fifteen years. I grew up in New York in a small town called Pleasantville. Where's that? Like upstate? It's uh, just north of New York City. Yeah. So about thirty miles north of the city. Uh, but I came to San Francisco when I was six, and I said, "This is where I'm going to live when I grow up." At six. At age six, I knew. I just knew. I could barely brush my teeth at six. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I wish I could remember exactly what it was that I fell in love with then, but I remember that it was sunny and there were a lot of old cars and the produce was really good and really plentiful at corner stores. And I ate a kiwi for the first time. 
Which I still love. <laughs> How do you get from dreaming about living here at six to actually making it a reality? What's the path in between? Uh, well, my path was um, Pleasantville, Providence, Rhode Island, Switzerland, Washington, D.C., Seattle, and then San Francisco. Um, but honestly, um, I waited until the crash to move here. That was critical because I didn't think I could have afforded to live here during the uh, the first dot-com boom. So I so moved to Seattle and waited out. You, oh, yeah. I timed it. I was waiting. So you arrive here, and you're full of optimism or pessimism after the, the bust? Oh, optimism. Because everybody was doing things that they loved. All of my friends had art projects, side projects. I mean, I just remember going out for brunch with my friends and, you know, everybody was always dreaming about their Burning Man project or their new art thing or what business they were going to start. And it was all things they were really excited about and passionate about. And people were always helping one another on making things happen. What do you mean by that? Everybody I met had a thing. You know, like I said, a project or an art thing or, or starting a business. In order to accomplish that, it's, it's hard and you need help. And so anybody who had gone through it knew how hard it was and would always offer to help when they heard, oh, you're doing a thing. I can help you. I mean, for me and starting Ritual, that was a huge part of it. There were so many people who showed up to literally help me build my first cafe, painted the walls or sanded the chairs or, you know, programmed my cash register for me the first night and things like that. So I am curious about the founding story a ritual. So you're here in San Francisco, you move here, and then you just decide one day to start a business. How did it happen exactly? So I had decided that I was going to open my own coffee shop. Why coffee? Because it's the thing that brings people together. I think I first fell in love with coffee shop culture when I was living in Switzerland. There was a coffee shop that I lived at. I would go there for coffee before school. I'd go there after school to do my homework. And then I'd go back after dinner to have a beer. And there was just nothing like that in the U.S. So that was an originally what I wanted to create. I wanted to create a cafe that would be the center of the literary movement of the early 21st century. So going back to Seattle, um, I had gotten to hear Dave Eggers give a talk. Pre-Circle fame. Yeah, this was shortly after a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius. Great book, yeah. And I went to the reading, and I really thought that I was going to dislike him because he's kind of arrogant in the book. But he was really charming and self-deprecating, and he was talking about this tutoring center that he was starting. And he was talking about how the permitting process in San Francisco was so complicated that it was easier for him to open a retail store and hide a tutoring center behind it than it was to change the zoning. And that's how 826 Valencia was born. So I heard him talk about this and I was like, that is where I'm going to open my cafe. I'm going to move to San Francisco and find a space across the street from 826 Valencia and all of those writers are going to come drink my coffee. Uh, that is such a very discreet vision for who you want to serve and what you want to build. That's Pretty inspiring. Thanks. The branding of Ritual is very distinct. How did you come up with the name Ritual, and how, how did you come up with the original branding? The name Ritual, it was a word that I, when people ask me, why do you love coffee, I couldn't help but use the word Ritual. Because for me, coffee is something I drink every day, but it never feels like a habit, especially 
between me and my first cup of coffee in the morning, there's a sacred moment. You know, when you're holding that cup and you just know that after that, everything's going to be better. And so I told people I was going to name my coffee company Ritual, and everybody tried to talk me out of it. They said, oh, that's, it's hard to say. It sounds like virtual. I think about sacrificing chickens. Um, but choosing... That's, an... I, that's totally where I went, straight to sacrificing chickens. <laughs> yeah. You're one of those people, huh? Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right, great. <laughs> but uh, it's also a nod to my degree is in religious studies, so I think if I had chosen... A different path, I would probably be studying something like the role of scent and ritual in the fourth century of Syria. So it's kind of a, a very specific area. Yeah, 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 that's why I'm in coffee, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like how coffee is pretty much universal. So, so you know what you're going to build. You show up in San Francisco, you build it. That group of people start coming to you. Yeah. Totally what do you worked. start doing with San Francisco? Like, what what happens for you? Yes, it worked, and you have a beautiful brand, and you make an amazing product, and the experience that you have in your stores are all wonderful. Like, what San Francisco do to you as an entrepreneur that starts to impact the way that your business works? That's a really good question. I think the biggest thing that San Francisco did to me was it just provided so many opportunities for me to get involved. Again, it's like getting involved in other people's projects because yeah. everybody needs coffee for things. So, hey, we're doing this weird indie shoot. Can you hook us up with coffee so we can keep everybody caffeinated? It's like, sure. Um, or, you know, just so many, you know, side things yeah. that we could get to have a role in. Um, that. I mean, I remember when I was building Ritual and I was doing things for the first time and I, you know, got to know where all the hardware stores were and which ones were open on Sundays and things like that. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm kind of sad that this is going to come to an end because every day my day is really different. And once I open, you know, the same people are going to come in at the same time every day and we're going to have the same conversation and things are going to become somewhat repetitive and you know it's been 13 years and no two days have ever been the same and incredible people walk in to the cafes and you know appreciate what we're doing and see a way for us to collaborate do you spend every day in stores well my office now is in the roastery which is not open to the public so it's not the same as it was um, when everything was happening out of valencia street yeah Uh, but i do spend time in the cafes every day you were a coffee entrepreneur before being a coffee entrepreneur became cool. And now you have what I guess they call them the third wave roasters. That's right. You have the blue bottle thing, which, you know, recently acquired. You have Phil's. You have all sorts of places coming up. I guess a couple of questions. First is, how has the market for coffee changed? I know this is not a business podcast, but maybe more from the lens of San Francisco the, the interest in coffee and how that's changed and how that's affected you and your business and how you think about things. People expect better coffee now. You know, when I first moved here, there wasn't good coffee in San Francisco. And when I told people, oh, we're going to do something different, we're going to create a better cafe with better coffee, they didn't know what I was talking about because they hadn't been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just incredible how... A few years later, you know, it's the norm that every tech company has really great coffee in the offices. And, I mean, when we first opened, we had customers driving from Sacramento every weekend. I'm, I'm not making that up. They came every weekend, and they would sit and drink coffee for a couple hours, and buy a couple pounds of coffee, and go home. 
they don't have to do that anymore because San Francisco has a, a thriving coffee scene. Sacramento now has a thriving coffee scene. Um, and I think people's idea of like a regular cup of coffee is now so vastly different than what it was 10 years ago. Do you look at other coffee companies and see, you know, oh, they've raised like $30 million or $40 million or been acquired. Do you ever feel like, okay, you know, maybe I should grow my business like that? Um, because you're a very traditional bootstrapped entrepreneur, ground up. Do you feel any of that pressure being in San Francisco at this time? I certainly have to look at that because I'm one of the only coffee companies left that's doing things the bootstrap way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I will admit, you know, I see a beautiful new $2 million build-out cafe and I'm like, ah, maybe I should do that. But my customers appreciate Ritual for the fact that we are genuinely local and independently owned. And more so, it would feel like a betrayal to my employees because they part of what drew them to working at Ritual instead of one of these other companies is that we're really a local company and we make decisions the way a small company makes decisions. I think the place where that is the most obvious is when we have an opportunity to grow. So somebody will say, hey, I want you to book a cafe in my building. And I think about the, you know, the idea and I'm like, well, do I have the staff to make this happen? Is this something... You know, do I already have the person who would be managing this cafe or leading the team there? Do I have employees who want to work there? And if the answer is no, then I, then I don't do it. You know, if we took investment, that's not the way we'd make decisions. Yeah, and you know, in a very not sober town when it comes to, you know, technology, raising venture capital, it's a very sober way of looking at things. Because we've had a chance in this podcast to talk to different folks that are in San Francisco, the perspective of like a local entrepreneur that's truly local doesn't show up often. So I'm really curious, what is inspiring for you as a local entrepreneur that has built a business in this community? Like, what do you, what do you look to, to get excited about what you think you need your organization to support or do? I collect uh, role models in my head. Mm-hmm. And so for years, Fritz Maytag, who is the owner of Anchor Steam, was my sort of the person I looked up to the most because he had taken Anchor Steam when it was a failing company and grew it and and turned it into a company that was internationally known, yeah. you know. And, of course, he has since sold it, and now it's been sold to Sapporo, which is... Not a San Francisco-based company. <laughs> no, and that's kind of heartbreaking to me yeah. to see this company that has been such an icon of San Francisco not be controlled by people in San Francisco anymore. And yeah. I know that that's been tough on the staff there because they took pride in being a San Francisco company. Right. So I look at, at people like that. I look at Sam from Byrate, who's an incredible inspiration. Mm-hmm. His company has grown so much and he still knows all of his employees by name. He says hi and goodbye to, to you know everyone he sees by name every day. Um, and I think that there's really value in that. I mean, I was just talking to somebody who was complaining about how Walmart, as the largest employer in the United States, pays their employees below the poverty standards. Yeah. So so those employees end up on assistance for food and housing. When you're a small company, you don't make decisions like that because you're seeing firsthand yeah. the impacts that you have on people's lives. Yeah. You know, when somebody is sick or gets hit by a car on their bike ride home, you know what's going on in their life. And you, yeah you know, send them a little care package and things like that that just you can't do when a company gets so big that you're insulated from your employees. What trends do you see happening in San Francisco right now that are 
likely going to be applicable to the rest of the world sometime in the near future? I think the biggest things that I'm seeing in San Francisco right now, um, if you take Valencia Street, it's a perfect example of this. So there's two things. People are changing the way they shop. We already know this. Garbage has changed, right? Because everything is Amazon boxes now instead of plastic bags from the corner store. And so what I'm seeing on Valencia Street is that small business owners and boutiques are figuring out that instead of just selling products, they have to be selling experiences. For example, you know, Paxton Gate, they don't just sell taxidermy. They now teach you how to make your own little taxidermy mouse. And Little Paper Planes, which is this incredible boutique that has really well curated art and crafts and jewelry, they're now doing workshops on how to make those arts and crafts and jewelry for both adults and kids. And Dandelion Chocolate's another amazing example of that. It's not just about buying chocolate. It's an experience just to go in there because they're making the chocolate there, but you can also take a class on how to make your own chocolate. Mm -hmm. So I think that that trend is going to be something that we're going to see leave San Francisco and hit other major areas. I mean, I was just in New York and walking down Broadway New York doesn't look like it's changed as much as San Francisco does, but I suspect that those apartment buildings are, you know, same thing. They're full of Amazon boxes in the in the trash room, just like ours are. So I suspect that that's going to become more a trend. The other thing I see on Valencia Street is, you know, the, a lot of the new stores that have opened recently are one-off stores of very large brands. So Valencia, of course, is actually the longest stretch of independently owned retail. We don't have any formula retail businesses. Is that just specific to San Francisco, or is that, do you know if it's broader than San Francisco? We haven't found anybody. San Francisco's formula retail law says if you have more than 11 locations, you have to have a hearing to open up in a neighborhood. That legislation, um, which I think Matt Gonzalez did, there's nothing else like it in the world. Like, I know people in London and people in Tokyo who have actually looked at that legislation to try and write something like that for their cities. So because we did that legislation first, we're the only ones who I think have successfully kept formula retail out of the up-and-coming hip neighborhoods, right? So, like, you look at Williamsburg and Brooklyn... Yeah, it's not, not independent retail anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm pretty sure we are, we get to claim that we're the longest stretch of independent retail in the world, thanks to this legislation. Wow. And so what's interesting is that if you look at what's opened in the last couple of years, we've got Reformation, Bagu, Top Drawer, and soon coming is Everlane. Now, these none of these have more than 11 locations, mm-hmm. but they're not exactly mom-and-pop shops. Right. Um, so... It's going to be interesting to see how San Francisco can adopt changes perhaps to the formula retail to filter those or to catch those. But, you know, that's the other trend I see for retail is that there's going to be more and more stores where you go in and look at the stuff, but then you go home and buy it. Yeah. Are you optimistic about the future of San Francisco as you just look out in the next five years? I am optimistic about the future of San Francisco. Of course, we have problems, and we have really serious problems. You know, I think homelessness is the most evident, the housing crisis and the ever-skyrocketing cost of housing. But I feel like we have already started making some changes that we're just starting to see the effects of. So I was at a political fundraiser last night, and I feel like 
things that we're doing, like the navigation centers for homeless people, that's actually working, you know, significantly better than anything, you know, of the homeless programs that were in place when I first moved here 10 years ago. D9, uh, Hillary Ronan's district, has seen, like, incredible um, success rates with navigation centers. So, and I'm excited to see the city expand that program. If Could you describe navigation centers for oh, listeners that don't yeah, know them? Yeah, sure. A navigation center is an alternative to a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. So homeless shelters typically have a lot of rules. They're separated by gender. So you, if you're heterosexual, you can't go there with your partner. You can't bring your dog. You can't bring all your stuff. Mm-hmm. You have to be in by a certain time and out by a certain time. Um, and generally, they're not very safe. And even so, there's still a thousand people every night on a wait list to get into a shelter. So navigation centers are a way of addressing the populations that aren't trying to get into shelters, either because they're committed to staying with their partner or their dog or yeah. their stuff. Um, and you can come and go as you please, which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The other, you know, on the housing side of things, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, an affordable housing advocate and... The density bonus law, which got rebranded and renamed as Home SF, very quietly passed in June. Um, And so what that does is that adds two stories to every possible site in the western part of the city. So that can have a huge impact. So I think we still have a long way to go, but I do see positive change. And I feel like we've got incredible talent and incredible skills to be able to solve these problems, you know, more so than ever before. Yeah. And the, the lesson to all the listeners is just a little bit of a rebrand and you can pass any legislation you need to. Yeah. I'm teasing. <laughs> Loved our time today. So thank you so much for being with us. We ask all of our uh, guests one question to end off each podcast, which is as you look across kind of different, let's call them social media channels for now, maybe Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, is there a follow, a person that you, or a group that you really like right now that you'd recommend to our listeners? I would. And uh, she's a great San Francisco writer, actually. Yeah. Rebecca Solnit is an incredible writer. The essay of hers that I just read recently that I would recommend is, um, I think it was called The Greatest Question of All. And it talks about her choice to not be a mother. And I think it struck me because it was one of three articles that I read that day where successful professional women had been interviewed about their status as a mother or not. Yeah. In a way that I just don't think that we do that to men. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because just she really dove into like why. Why is that yeah. a conversation that we ask? Like, what bearing does that have on her career as a writer? Thank you very much for the recommendation. Sure. Thank you for the time. Thank you for sharing us uh, your story, the origination story of Ritual, as well as kind of how you came to San Francisco. We appreciate it. Sure. It was fun talking to you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. We are always looking for great topic suggestions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at info at thebolditalic.com if you have suggestions on either. Thanks for spending some of your time today with us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of season one.